Well, good morning. My name is Chad. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, it would be an honor and a joy. Just as was said, we're walking through 1 Corinthians. We've been in it for a number of months. But as, I, as, I, as I've been thinking about it and praying about it, I just come back to this phrase that I picked up a long time ago. Someone smart said it to me. I don't know where it came from, but, uh, but it has stuck with me. And, and it's this, we practice daily what we really believe. We practice daily what we really believe. And when I, when I was in elementary school, my parents made me learn how to play cello at school. And all I did uh, was haul it around and then make up all the times that I was practicing. And somehow I thought no one would ever understand that. Somehow, somehow I thought, like, they'll never clue in to what I'm doing. Like, uh, but we practice daily what we really believe. That's true with a cello, that's true in a sport, that's true even in our faith, is that we, we can oftentimes just show up at a place where we go through these things week in and week out, but we're not actually practicing what we say we believe. I had a friend years ago, uh, he was in his 80s, and I showed up at a hospital bed with him. His name was Vern. That tells you he was in his 80s right there. And it, like his name was Vern, and he'd had some massive uh, medical condition, and it was really scary stuff. And he was getting to a point where he was just real honest in his life. And, and we were having a conversation, nothing particularly spiritual, but he, he just told me, he said, he said, I've gone to church almost all my life, and I'm not even sure what I believe. And I just was thinking about Vern a lot this week. I was thinking about him in light of a church full of people that uh, most of us grew up in the Bible Belt, maybe not necessarily directly in this, but, but we live in a country, if nothing else, in which is surrounded by churches. And so many times we end up just kind of going through the motions of things without even understanding the what and the why. My prayer for all of us this week, but particularly for you, if that's you, is that this would be a moment, a day in which, by God's grace, some of the, the dots start to connect. In that you're, you're not being invited to a church service. Even when we ask you to come for Good Friday, we're not just asking you to come to a church service or something that we're doing. We're inviting you into, not something that we're pulling off, we're inviting you into this unbelievable picture that God has given us. This life, when the Bible talks about the abundant life promised in Christ, like this is something so much more than just a gathering once a week. And we, we see that as we walk into it. So like I've said, we've, we're going through 1 Corinthians. And whether this is your first time with us or you've been with us for every step of this, I, I just want to give you a couple of handles to try to, in a small way, connect some dots as in a broader sense we connect dots through this. We uh, have been looking at this letter. Paul is, the Apostle Paul wrote this to this church in Corinth. They're having a back and forth correspondence. And Paul planted the church. It's a fatherly letter, but it's a fatherly letter of correction. There's so much that he's correcting. There's so much he's speaking into. But he's tenderly loving this church. And he's saying, some of this is off. And one of the things that we've seen that's off and this is another one of those handles to grab hold of, 
is that uh, Corinth, the church in Corinth, looked far more like the city and the way the city was acting. They were marching far too much to the rhythms of the city. And, and even in their worship looked and sounded like the rhythms of the city. And, and Paul's like, no, no, no. The, the way that we worship, the way that we gather is supposed to be like the ways of Christ, not the ways of Corinth. And so it's like, remember, as we walk through this, like, like Paul, this father is speaking over them as, a, as one who tenderly cares for them. There's, he's speaking to some, some ways in that they look more like the world around them. And, and the third thing is that we're in a section, 11, really through 14 here, in which we're not talking about individual issues anymore. We're talking about what does the church look like when it gathers? And specifically right here, what does it look like when we gather around what the Bible refers to in multiple ways, but it, it says the Lord's table or the Lord's supper? What does that look like? And maybe this is your first time at church, or maybe you've, you've heard that and it never kind of connected the dots. It, it's, it may still be uh, something that we go through, but you're like, I don't really know what that is. It's a weird thing that happens at the end of services uh, off of this. But here's what this is. It's an invitation into the body of Christ. It, it's an invitation into the gospel message. I thought we had a fire drill going off here or something like that. It's an invitation to step into something that is so much bigger, this gospel story in which Jesus gave his life, and he says, do this in remembrance of me. We live this out. We're, we're, we're actually stepping into it each week when we break the bread and we hand it off to one another. I say that because the Bible's one large story. It's not, it's not just 1 Corinthians. It's not just the, a, a gospel story. It's one large story. And this morning, I'm going to take us to a couple of places around it. I'm going I'm to reference uh, something that's from the very back of it, the very last page of your Bible, probably. It's from Revelation. And I'm going to reference uh, another book that is right tucked away in the middle there that's often one that uh, we miss, and that's Song of Solomon. I'm going to actually reference that in, in this and, and talk about Song of Solomon. It comes right before this big one, Isaiah, but it's in there in the middle, and sometimes it's like, listen, Prince, it's buck wild. It's buck wild. And then, of course, because we're talking about the Lord's Supper, we're going to talk about Hosea. We're going to talk about Hosea. In this picture of a husband and wife that actually helps us understand what all this is about. And so last week, someone came up to me after the service and they said, like, why is Paul, here's a great question they asked, why is Paul so bent out of shape about hair and head coverings? You're like, that's, a, that's actually a great question. It was a great question. I wish I, I wish I had thought to put that into the sermon. Like, hey, we should answer this question. It's such a great question. And, and the simple answer is because there's so much more going on than just hair and head coverings. And the same is true today as we speak about the Lord's table. Is Paul uh, so caught up in, in how, like, physically we march up to the table? Do we go both ways? Do we put tables in back? Or is something bigger going on? And that helps us to understand this. So as we jump into it, I, I just kind of have three things I want us to look at today. This, the, the amazing ways in which they miss the point in Corinth and, and how we could do the same. The second turn that we're going to make is that, that there is massive meaning in this 
gospel picture that we have in the table, and the the text unpacks this. And then finally, I want you to see from the text that there are loud warnings right here for us on how we approach the table. So I I would encourage you to open your Bible to 1 Corinthians 11. I encourage you to open it. If you need a Bible, there there are Bibles over on the table. We would love to give you one of those and have you have it. But we're going to walk through this together. And so I want to pray for you, and I, I desperately need you to be praying for me. Father, Thank you. Thank you that we're not here at just another event on our calendar. Thank you that you've given us something so much more, something so much more beautiful, and we just ask that you'd you'd work here with us. We pray that you would tune our hearts and help us to see. God, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, by your grace, you would connect dots in our life that we would practice today. That we would practice today the things that we say we believe. It's in your name we pray. For your glory and our good. Amen. Amen. So let's dive in here. Like adventures and missing the point as read through the church in Corinth. We'll pick it up with me here in verse 17. It says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Here, let let me translate that for you. It would be better for you not to come together than what you're doing in this. It's interesting because Paul's going to give a number of of kind of issues over the next couple chapters in which he he says lovingly in in our vernacular, he says, you guys have made a train wreck of this. This is the only one that he's going to say, hey, it would probably have been better for you all to stay home and not do that. That should get our attention. There's something going on here. It better... It's not for the better, but for the worse. Verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And guess what? I believe it in part. Like We're 11 chapters into this. Paul knows a lot of the mess that's going on here. Paul, I, I, I believe that there are divisions. And in a nutshell, that sums up so much that's going on in in Corinth, as we experience it, as we feel division in our hearts, oftentimes that we don't even verbalize, as we sense division, we should know something is off. And Paul's putting his finger on that here. I said, like, there's division among you. And, and I believe it in part, verse 19, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, now hear this. This is Paul Like, this is salty Paul in in a sharp tongue right here. Of course there's divisions so that we know who the real ones are. Like, Paul is, is making a point that what they're doing and how they're going about it is crazy. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Oh my word, like Paul is having at it. They're divided. This church is divided over leadership. They're divided over sexual ethics. These are just things that we've walked through. They're suing one another. They're they're actual believers who are suing one another in the church. They're divided over, like, can I eat this? Can I eat that? Uh, They're divided over idol food and what that would look like. And so it should not surprise them that they're even divided over the Lord's table. 
What they've done is that they've turned, they've turned the, the most clear picture of God's sacrificial love. It's often referred to as communion, which means communal. This picture of like everybody comes to the table in the same condition. None of us are bringing anything to it. We come broken. We come as sinners to this table. And what he's saying is that you people are coming, and, and some of you are eating first, and some of you are getting better food, and some of you uh, are like prancing up to the table and doing it, and some of you are even getting drunk in this. What are you doing? I love how one commentator described it. He, he said it's like getting food on an airplane. You... you if you've been on an airplane, maybe you've experienced this. I get the little box in back because my seat is often right next to the toilets in back out there. And you know those little boxes are awesome, aren't they? It's the best food on the plane and stuff. I assume it's the best food, but I know that there's a whole other group up front that gets food that doesn't come in a box. It comes like this. But here's what happens. The person comes and they pull the curtain so no one can see them. There's instant division and I feel it. That's what's happening in Corinth is like you guys, you guys are like dividing into all these classes and you think like these people are actually getting more food than other people and they're fighting for a proper space and they're wanting to look a certain way and they've taken this gospel picture in the bread and the wine and they've twisted it from being the most self-sacrificial thing into like this self-serving food fight that they're having in Corinth. It's a mess. It's a mess all around. Some are getting drunk. Verse 22 says this. What, what do, you, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Do you not, do not have houses to eat or drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. This gets called a number of things. This gets called the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Table. It gets called the Eucharist, which literally means uh, giving of thanks. Giving thanks. Like, well, it gets called communion, of course, which get, paints a picture for us and all of it. But his, his point is, if all you want is a meal, stay home. If all you want to do is prance around, stay home. If all you want is to think that, have other people think that you're spiritual or that you're something or that you've got your act together or, or that somehow you don't have any sin in your life, stay home. That's, you're not eating the Lord's, the Lord's Supper. You're doing something altogether different. And I want you to pause here and, and just look at your own approach to the Lord's table. Just like pause with me before we go too far into the details. Like recognize it's a picture. It's a picture of something much bigger. It's a picture of the body and blood of Jesus prepared as a feast for his people. It's a picture on display through the Lord's table. It, it, uh, the, in the ways in which we twist it up, in the ways in which we come about ourselves, we're distorting the picture to a watching world. We're distorting it. And this is where 
We've got, to, we've got to catch on. To, there's something more going on. Is Paul uh, super upset over which type of bread they get? Listen, years ago, uh, I was doing student ministry, and we decided, like, we were like, we need to have the Lord's Supper here with the students, and we'll walk them through this. And we'll go that. So I sent out one of the guys to get bread for us, and he comes back with bread. And he's like, look what I found. I got some bread for us tonight. Asiago cheese bread from Panera. You're like, you know, we screwed this one up. Paul would be ticked off right now. <laughs> I was like, I can't believe we're going to do this, but yet here we go. The zesty flavor that comes up with that. Is Paul as concerned about uh, the type of bread that we use, or is there something more going on? Because what we need to catch is that this table is packed with meaning. It's packed with meaning. And that's what we need to see in this. Read with me in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus took on the night when he was betrayed. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed uh, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Put, your, put a pin in that word remembrance. In the same way, also, he took the cup after, after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Put a pin in the, those words, new covenant. New covenant. Do this as often as you drink it. In remembrance of me, verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the, the Lord's death until he comes. It doesn't say, oh man, you're getting, you're, you're getting a meal every time. No, you're proclaiming something. You're proclaiming something super meaningful. So there's so much meaning packed in here. And this is our second turn today. There's so much meaning packed in mundane things. We're, we're in a strip mall. We're in a room that used to be a grocery store storage place. If you, if you grew up in Yukon, this was Snyder's. Like, we're in a place that was never designed to be a church. And yet there's so much meaning packed into this little table, not because of the care brought to it. And people were, were careful with it. And not because it's super awesome or because the cup's super awesome. Like, no, it's packed in meaning because it proclaims the gospel truth of God's love. And if we just reduce it, as we so often do, to just remember that you're a screwed up mess, and just remember that God loves you, well, we only get a one-sided view of this. Because that's not the whole story, right? You and I are screwed up messes. And, and man, the, the grace of the body broken in Jesus is offered to you. The blood shed for your sins is offered to you and to me. But that's not the whole story. It's not just a remember and look back. It's a remember that there's a feast offered to you, a fresh grace offered today by the grace of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's work in our lives is offering fresh grace at work in your life today. 
And it doesn't just stop there. It doesn't just go like, hey, thousands of years ago on the cross this happened. No, the Spirit is at work today in your life and in mine. If you're a follower of Jesus, and that is on offer for you, and remember that today. But it's also pointing to something more because the end of the story matters to us just as much as these other stories matter. The end of it is not just like, okay, Jesus, I need you in my life so that I can endlessly just go to church and, and t- sing songs and do that. That's not what you're called to. Revelation, the book of Revelation at the very end of the Bible speaks that all of this is moving to a day when there are no more tears. There's no more tears. There's no more cancer. There's no more abuse. There's no more pain. There's no more trauma. There's no more suffering because Jesus has made all of that, all of that right. And it tells us that in that day, in that day, there's no more gates because there's nothing to get you. There's no more. There's not even a sun because he is the sun. He is the light of the world. It was right there. And it says that you and I, those followers of Christ rescued by his blood, those, all of us are invited to what the Bible refers to as the marriage feast of the lamb. The marriage feast of the lamb. All of this points not just to something that has happened, but to something that will happen. A marriage feast. A marriage feast. That is massively significant. So the question is how you and I can remember that we are sinners hungry in need of God's grace. But that we also remember that the Spirit is at work and we need him right now for today not just for what happened, but for what is happening today. Just to get through today, remember the present nourishment offered by the Spirit and remember the perfect feast promised, this marriage feast of the Lamb. I was struck in, in, in reading, I picked up a book a few years ago, and it described a historical practice of the church. It described this practice that we don't do today, but I so much of me that it's like, that is amazing. And, and for, for centuries, the church would gather, and it would be a week-long feast. It would be a week-long celebration, I should say. It would be a celebration in which they would gather, and they would pray. And then they would read the Bible together. That they would, they would worship together. They would fast together and confess confess sin together over the whole week not an hour on a Sunday morning over a week and the reading wasn't just like hey does someone have something they want to read today no they were they were moving throughout the week towards the Lord's table towards this table towards communion and they were reading throughout the week they were reading the song of Solomon Again, when I read that, I had read the story and I was reading all this stuff. And it says, hey, here's what they read. They read the Song of Solomon to prepare them for the table, to prepare them for this. I was like, wait a second, what? Friends, you can read the Song of Solomon in about 15 minutes. And let me just give you a synopsis. It's buck wild and it's crazy. You're going to blush and then you're going to say, wait, 
I don't know what that means. I know what that means, and it sounds super weird, but I don't know what that means. And there's all sorts of things. But in, in short, it is a love story between a bridegroom and his bride. And it's their letter back and forth. It's poetry, and it, it has all sorts of things said there. But it's a love story between a bridegroom and his bride. And you read this, and you think, this is what they were reading going to the table, and I say yes, because every bit of this table points to the marriage feast. Maybe the most famous verse in Song of Solomon is this. You may, may have heard it. You may have heard songs about it, but hear again with fresh ears in light of the Lord's table, because this was what it says in chapter 2, verse 4. It says, he brought me he brought me to the banqueting house. And his banner over me was love. The bridegroom brought me to the banquet because of his love. And the very next section in Song of Solomon is described as the bride adores her beloved. This is the text that they were walking through as historically they were moving to the table. And so there's so much meaning going on right here. And if there is so much meaning packed in this table, just as the Bible explains there is, that the end goes back to a feast, that we see so much around this feast, that we're being invited to a table right here, that Jesus says, do this and remember me, feast. Feast on my body, feast on this blood. Then the fact that Corinth is screwing this up so massively uh, is like, this is a big deal. We need to understand it. And we shouldn't be surprised that the last section of this text is actually a warning. It's a loud warning to these people about how they're living. It's a loud warning to us today. But it's also a big picture of something so much more. Pick it up. Verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Now what, what unworthy manner? Is that cheese bread? Like unworthy manner is when we just go through the motions or we're trying to prance around for other people or we just get up and, and we're like, I don't even know why I'm here today. I'm just going to go do it because that's what we always do. Or I don't even care about my sin. I don't even care about my sin. And we approach the table unrepentant. We're just in our own pride thinking, like, I got this. I've got this. An unworthy manner in which we're, we're just posturing and, and polishing up our hearts so other people think something. When God knows. An unworthy manner in which we, we don't recognize that we're invited to be the bride. The bridegroom has prepared a feast for us, but we're just going through church motions because that's the part of the country that we live in. You could come to church today for the very first time and take the, the Lord's Supper in a, a way that it means nothing. You could come to church a million times and still do the exact same thing. But the invitation is open and the warning is clear. Verse 28. 
Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Examine myself. That I would know my sin, yes. That I would know that I fall short, yes. But that I also would recognize and that you would recognize that you're not alone in this. This isn't just a solo act. This is an invitation to the body as the bride. It's an invitation to a wedding feast and examine yourself in light of that. For anyone, verse 29, who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Judgment on yourself. We probably... We probably think that this judgment is like, that means I can't go to heaven, as if that's the whole story. And we've reduced it so often to that being the whole story. It's like, man, do you have your get into heaven card? Have you prayed the prayer and really meant it? Or do you have your life cleaned up? If you were to die today, do you know where you'd go? And those questions can be helpful, but they're also reductionist in some way too, because you're not just invited to get to a place there, you're invited into something today. And if you don't recognize, you're not connecting the dots on what God has called you to. Today. Not to clean yourself up, but to step into this gospel picture that you have that we have right here before us. It would be easy to think that he's just talking about eternal judgment, but the next words help us to see that he's talking about something different. Verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Wait a second. Like, because of the way they're taking the table? Yes, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Are you saying, Chad, is the Bible saying right here that there are people that have gotten ill and sick and potentially died because they missed what was happening at the table? That's exactly what the Bible is saying. It's exactly what the Bible is saying. I'm not making that up. That's what it says. In Acts, in the, the letter to, of Acts, we have at least four examples of that happening. Uh, of God speaking judgment, temporary judgment, earthly judgment in places which are corrective, which are corrective and for their good. And somebody decided to call me right now. Some spammerist decided to call me right now. See, sin leads to judgment. But the key sentence comes in verse 32. It says this, but when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. And we have that. We know this. We know this intuitively. That's what parents do. That's what a good parent does. It is just what Paul's doing in this letter, but a good parent is like, man, I love you enough to tell you your stuff stinks. I love you enough to tell you that this does not end well. That's what we've already seen in this letter to the church in Corinth. In chapter five, you have church discipline coming. That's the point of church discipline. It's not to, to beat somebody up. The point of church discipline is restorative. That's, that's God's good discipline that we have. We've seen it in Acts, but we see it in other places too. God even gives us a whole book in the Bible 
tucked away in the Old Testament, you have this section of prophets, the minor prophets back there, and you have this book of Hosea. And I just want to take the next couple minutes to give you the briefest of overviews of Hosea. Hosea is a weird, a, a weird book to our brains. Hosea is this man in the story, and essentially all that we know about Hosea is that God spoke to him and told him to take a wife. That's what we know about him. He told him to take a wife, and a detail about that wife is that she's going to be habitually unfaithful. You're like, great, God, thank you for that word in my life. Uh, her name turns out to be Gomer. I'm not going to unpack that one for you. It's a weird name. Hosea and Gomer have this marriage. They have this marriage in which it, the book even gets, it, it weaves its way back and forth, and most of the book suddenly takes on an illustration of God and Israel. The marriage between these real people in a real place at a real time, Hosea and Gomer, is actually God illustrating for all of us throughout time his love for his people. And his people are unfaithful. They make a mess out of so much of it. The story here in Hosea, again, you could read this in 20 minutes tops. The story here is so big. In chapter 11, he says, he makes this really clear. In chapter 11, we hear him say, uh, the Lord himself summarizes the condition by saying, my people are determined to turn from me. They just think about that. There's a determination that I'm going to walk away from God. I'm just going to do my own thing. There's like, wow, that is strong. In chapter 12, God describes what the people are doing as contempt. As contempt, which is, again, I think we, uh, so many of us could come up with like a definition that we'd come up with. But I think it's helpful to have an actual clarity around this. That contempt means the feeling that a person or a thing is beneath consideration, worthless, or deserving scorn. You see, sin was not merely the breaking of some impersonal principle. Like our sin that we confess in our liturgy, our, our sin that we walk through in the day is not just like, oh, did you look at the wrong thing? Did you do the wrong thing? Did you drink the wrong thing? Did you say the wrong thing? No, it's a breaking of a covenant. Between God the bridegroom and his bride. It's the breaking of a covenant. And I, I, I put this right here when we say, does God really cause people to like feel uncomfortable because of their sin? Yes, and we see it right here in Hosea. We see this clearly in chapter 2, verse 6. It tells us this very thing. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns. And I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. You see, friends, her paths were leading her to sin. Her paths were leading her to other lovers. Her paths were leading her away from her husband to other things. And God himself says, 
God himself says, I will put hedge of thorns. Just put yourself in Gomer's position for a second. She must have hated those thorns. And thought, this is the worst thing in my life. I can't believe this is happening to me. This hurts so bad. And all of it was to lead her right back to repentance, to her first love. Friends, I don't, I don't know if you have thorns all around you right now. I don't know if you're experiencing all sorts of challenges that you're like, why is this happening to me? If I could just catch a break, if I just win the lottery, if this would just happen, if this would just happen. And maybe, maybe, I do not know, but maybe God is using those things to draw you back to himself as your first love. To remind you that you have a perfect bridegroom who is pursuing you and leading you back and has not given up on you and has not thrown you away and is not saying like you are hopeless and you are worthless. Instead, it's the opposite. It's the opposite. Gomer's only hope was in a love that she never deserved. That's the message of Hosea. That God's great love was for this unfaithful bride. And this is your hope and my hope as well. It's our only hope that you and I are unfaithful to God. Our sin is acting in contempt to God. It's only when we understand this do we begin to understand what his love actually is what his love actually looks like. And when we start to understand that love, we start to understand the feast that God has prepared. He brought you and I to his banqueting table. And his banner over you and I is love. It's love. So the question is not, did we get cheese bread today? The question is not, did you eat enough to qualify for not being hungry running to this today? The question is not, like, do, do I wait a second and let these people go first? If, am I being pushy? Am I doing what they what they're said they do here in Corinth? That's not the question of, of what's happening here today. The, the Lord's table is not a reward for the sinless. The Lord's table is a feast for sinners who know they're starving and this is the only place where the meal is found. So the question is, am I aware and alive to this gospel reality that I'm stepping into? Am I aware and alive to the aisle that I'm walking? what that symbolizes to the world around us? Am I aware of the covenant in which I'm ingesting as I swallow the bread and I swallow the wine? Am I aware and alive to the feast that I'm being invited into? And to miss that invitation is to miss the entire point 
of the meal. And so having walked through all of that, he ends with these words. It's super simple. He says this in verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This morning, this morning, let's practice what we say we believe. Let's practice living out as the bride of Christ invited to the banqueting table together. Will you pray with me?